The Sound of Young America's trip to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was supported by Phillips Cinema, celebrating short film online at facebook.com slash Cinema. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. Welcome to the show. This week's show was recorded at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. My guest is the filmmaker David Gordon Green. He most recently directed the big-budget action comedy Pineapple Express with Seth Rogen, but before that, he had directed a series of small, independent films, including 2000's George Washington. It was his debut feature, and it focused on a young man named George and his friends in an unnamed, small, southern industrial town. It's a very poignant, touching, powerful, emotional film, but the same fine rendering of detail that gives it those qualities also makes it very funny in moments, like in this scene in which several railroad workers are talking during their lunch break. Hey, Augie, now that Damascus quit, I bet my dad makes you supervisor. Maybe you get a raise. Hey, can I get a light? I am absolutely disgusted with all of you. Completely disgusted. Look at what you eat for lunch. Look at that. What is that? That's preservatives. It's fudge. You listen. Nobody cares, man. Nobody cares what you're saying. It causes cancer. I'm not gay. I have a wife, okay? It causes cancer. At least if you're going to eat that, have some almonds. How do you deal with yourself? You know, when I go to the bathroom, I like to be proud of what happens. I like to be proud of the whole experience. I like to know that it smells sweet, not horrible. Hold up, hold up. And there are two hot dogs with chili somewhere in my pantsuit. David Gordon Green, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. Good to be here. So um, when you were a student filmmaker, um, you you made your first feature film straight out of college. But um, when you were a student filmmaker, what kind of movies did you imagine yourself making? Um, that's a good question. I, I, in terms of movies that I enjoyed seeing, it's everything. You know, as a kid, I just grew up a, a fanatic, and was there was nothing that was too strange or too um, bubblegum or popcorn or arty or farty or uh, foreign or whatever. You name it, I was I was in line to see everything. I read a very touching tribute you wrote to the uh, oeuvre of Steven Seagal. Exactly. Like I was, a, I was a big fan of particularly his early stuff, but also like I've kind of. Uh, in the last few years, grown an appreciation for his directed DVD films as well. So it's just kind of, um, you know, my mood is like a roller coaster, and my taste is like is the same. And, and some days I'm up for something, and other days I'm up for the other. Um, professionally, I'm trying to kind of play to my taste in that realm as well, where I can do a little of this, a little of that. Um, but in terms of the, the formative years of um, film school and, and meeting uh, the the band of filmmakers I collaborate with to this day. In term, outside of just the enjoyment of movies, I look to make movies that felt like things that you could touch, and that, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the way I've come to describe them. I mean, there were films in in that period of time that were coming out, like um, Days and Confused and What's Eating Gilbert Grape and um, that Clint Eastwood movie, A Perfect World. There were just movies that I felt like when I watched them that, I mean, maybe it's because I grew up in Texas and those, were, those kind of had Texas backdrops, but I'm watching those movies repeatedly and just seeing things that I felt like weren't such a, they weren't so fantastic. They weren't, didn't take place on other planets. They didn't take place, um, y- you know, it was nothing that was so far away from what truly existed in my life. 
um, that I couldn't turn a camera on it. So I always use those, those films as like inspirational points because of the timing of their release in a lot of ways as things that inspired me to think, you know, this is actually doable. It's sort of different than a lot of the um, uh, the kind of stylized and hyper-real indie movies that were coming out in, in the late 1990s. I mean, there's a big difference between George Washington and, I don't know, being John Malkovich or, you know, the films that were inspired by Pulp Fiction or something like that. Well, I think a lot of that is always my desire to design movies that aren't or that are an alternative to what's out there. Um, and at that time... What was almost radical was to use what was my appreciation for 70s aesthetics and the filmmakers of uh, Terrence Malick and Robert Altman and the, the filmmakers that had that kind of organic school of filmmaking, um, a little less strict narrative, a little looser, a little bit more improvised um, inspirations of John Cassavetes and, and you know many filmmakers from, I always look at the late 60s through the 70s into the early 80s as, as the, the films that are closest to my heart. So to me, uh, making a movie that... At the time period where commercial directors and music video directors were starting to make their stamp, you know, my brain doesn't really function in that way, and my vision doesn't really uh, achieve some of what they're so successful at. Um, but turning a camera on a world in a little less of a strict narrative, and a little in characters that aren't necessarily represented in films very often, and not using big marquee actors, and using using more of a microscope type of approach to filmmaking rather than the grand landscape and scale of of some of the more expensive movies was kind of my way of saying well i can't do what they're doing but here's something that no one's doing that uh, or at least they haven't done in a while that i can bring to the table and maybe use as a calling card to get backing and and you know get 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 my hands dirty and making movies i just watched george washington the other day and um I, I described it as impressionistic, which feels, frankly, like a sort of like hyper-cliched, um, uh, dumb critic thing to say about something. But um, it's a it's a sort of a string of moments. And, and I was reading an, an old interview with you where you described your process for making that film and uh, that really explained that sense in the film. And, and part of it was that... Uh, you technically were worried that you might lose any given shot that you had shot, so you had to structure the film in such a way that if you lost a scene, nothing would go wrong totally. with the movie. That was literally part of the design. I had $40,000 that I'd saved. It was actually a year after I'd graduated college, and I just worked at seven jobs for a year and just <laughs> saved all my money. Wait, what were the seven jobs? Um, I was a maid uh, at cleaning houses after parties of rich people, and I was in California. I was a concierge at a casino. Um, I worked like uh, in a market research company running test screenings of movies or like, you know, collecting papers and handing out pencils kind of jobs. Um, I was a janitor at a mental institution. Um, I just, I've had every job. You're, in the, you're in doing the, pretty good yeah. there. Once you get to janitor in a mental institution, you no longer have to build up any cred. <laughs> it was a, it was a fun year out, and I, and I would and I would like do the typical like sperm donor donate body to science kind of things to make you know you could you could walk around with a diaper sample taped to your back and be making eighty bucks a day. So literally <laughs> anything for money, um, and uh, and that was the year. So then I saved that money. But I wanted to design a movie that every scene was disposable in a way. I mean, in George Washington, it was put together in a way that outside of a few central scenes, we could lose a few rolls of film in the mail, and it wasn't going to be a big deal. Because I couldn't afford sending, you know, we're shooting in rural North Carolina, and I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't afford FedEx to send the film to the lab every, every day like you would typically, or even every week. So we just kind of stockpiled it and 
you know, kept our fingers crossed that it was going to make it. And we actually lost several reels of the movie. And there was about a six-week period of time after production that I thought it was going to be a short film because we didn't really have some of the key narrative elements. And I figured, you know, again, with having my inspiration in some lesser known, more obscure, interesting short films, like films like Chris Marker's La Jete or Clue Gulliger's A Day with the Boys and um, Diane Cannon's uh, Number One. Like those are some of my favorite films of all time are short films and have kind of that impressionistic quality. And I thought I could get away with making my calling card on a smaller scale. And fortunately, eventually, those those roles of film turned up. You know, I think they were turned to like, they, they showed up at the camera house instead of the, you know, the, the film lab some misunderstanding like that, but they showed up and we were able to put a movie together about it. The movie is uh, built around a, a, a central tragedy. Um, and I was surprised at how funny I found it. Um, was that part of your intent in making the film that these, uh, that when you ground something so deeply in truth, you can find both the tragedy and, and the humor? That's absolutely true. I mean, some of the, 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 funniest things are, are embraced by the tragedy that surrounds them. And, and if, if I'm making something that could seem bleak on the surface or by its own subject matter or concept, it, you know, it's going to be a real downer. I, 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 I constantly try to push to find the light in that. And maybe there is no bigger picture light, but it's a smaller, um, smaller little detail or something that brings a smile or something awkward that's said or just the way someone reacts. Um, I was working on a film, Snow Angel, several years ago, and, and in the same way, it kind of has some very heavy subject matter that comes, and a lot of people you know, refer to the film as bleak or whatnot, but I tried to put comedic actors in bleak situations, so you get those kind of little sparks and smiles, and it's not jokes, it's not set up and pay off comedy, but it's, it's the, the humor of life that makes me laugh the hardest. It's someone acting cool is the funniest thing I can see, rather than you know, a, a typical stand-up comic trying to... Um, bust up a crowd it's this it's the smaller strangely um uh, i don't know more character driven things that i laugh at it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest is the filmmaker david gordon green he made his name with intimate indie pictures but his most recent film was the relatively big budget action comedy pineapple express in this scene from the movie, Seth Rogen's paranoid stoner protagonist has been on the run all night, and he just arrived late to dinner at his girlfriend's parents' house. The parents are played by a very skeptical Ed Begley Jr. and Nora Dunn. Hi. Hi. Shannon. Intro, Shannon. Great to meet you. You too, Robert, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll meet. sit. Oh, my God. Hey. Okay. What the hell happened to Nothing. you? Nothing. I'm supposed to be here right now. So I'm here. You're all dirty and bleeding. No, I'm not. I'm here for dinner. You have scratches on your forehead. Dude, you smell like shit. Dill, what happened to you? I was in the woods. In the woods? Yeah, isn't that weird? I was I was in the woods. What were you doing in the woods? I bird watch. I don't. I, no, I don't. Look, I'm going to come clean. I witnessed a murder, okay? I saw someone murder someone else, and... I, I think they've been following me. And there's a good chance they went to my apartment where Angie has a lot of things. She has her yearbooks, report card, she, or her cell number is written, and it's on my fridge. So they could then really? find this house. They could come here. We should call the police right away. We can't call the police. The police oh. were the murderers. That's what's we so flipping the scary. The they were the murderers. Angie, are you... I swear to God, you, what do you do something or I'm gonna... No, don't. Don't let him gonna. No, don't wanna. Look, we gotta... Get the F out of here. Let's go. We need to begin to prematurely evacuate. Are you high? 
What? No, I'm not high. What? You are high as a kite. I'm not high. Let's go. We're not going anywhere. I'm coming back in a minute. You know what I'm coming back with? No, what? I'm coming back with a gun. You better be out of here. Robert. Your gun? His gun? Why do you have a... Don't get a gun. Why would he bear arms? Look, no. We need to go. Everyone, I'm leading the parade. That was a clip from this stoner comedy, Pineapple Express, directed by my guest, David Gordon Green, who's also known for his dramatic films like George Washington and All the Real Girls. We spoke at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. So you have now made this transition into making these comedy, comedy films. Um, what, did you, what did you draw upon to, uh, to make a you know, midnight run type film rather than a Robert Altman <laughs> type film? Um, well, you know, looking at a film like Pineapple Express and the approach to that was similar to, as I'd spoken of earlier, of trying to make what's not out there. And a lot of my inspirations for that particular film, rather than digging to the 70s as I'd done on my earlier work, was looking at the 80s and movies like Midnight Run, as you say, or Tango and Cash or 48 Hours. And kind of the vibe of 80s body action movies was something that um, could be our within the budgetary constraints of what we had to offer, basically... Um, Sony was generous enough to give us a, a budget, but they gave us a comedy budget, and we were trying to infuse that with action and shootouts and car chases and things like that. So um, our stylistic model became movies, you know, Fletch and, and um, uh, a lot of these Beverly Hills Cop movies that I thought had um, were great character pieces, but also were able to integrate action sequences. and um, a- Action comedy is sort of before the rush hour model of right. action comedies where everything looks like it's $150 million on screen. Exactly. When things get, they get, they get a little overblown sometimes. And, um, you know, the lessons I'm learning now is, is I understand why. It's because when you have so many logistics and, and their safety and their special effects and their stunt work, you have to give those very critical attention. And sometimes doing that, you have to prioritize that because it is. It's, it's safety and people's lives are at risk and they're, uh, and they're brave and bold enough to do it in front of a camera. Sometimes you have to compromise performances and your, or at least, not necessarily, but you have to compromise um, your attention to actors and your design of the characters. And so um, Pineapple, fortunately, I, I think we were able to keep it as a very strict character piece and then have the backdrop also in a great certain action sequences. But I think that was, and that was kind of within what the 80s model was. You know, I, I, I don't know this from any sort of fact, but I, f- I feel like I've read that Beverly Hills Cop was written as a dramatic action movie and then they then had Ed, Eddie Murphy show up and turn it into a comedy just by his mere presence. And that was kind of what we wanted to do, was have a movie that felt like it could be a serious um, movie and then put kind of people that don't belong in a serious movie in that movie, and that's what would make it funny. I think there's there's this expectation that if you're making uh, the kind of film that um, uh, that George Washington is, for example, that you're making a sort of an auteur film, um, and uh, the Judd Apatow community, I guess is how you might define it now, um, is well known for um, uh, making these very personal movies, but also very self-consciously making them for audiences, including uh, a very complicated process of um, figuring out what the audience laughs at by showing it to them yeah. and you know, paying attention and editing for the audience. Um, what did you learn about the movie that you had made 
by putting it in front of audiences in a, you know, 75% or 85% completed form. Well, I mean, that's a very interesting uh, conversation, particularly right now, because I'm in that process on my latest film. Um, and, and I think for comedies, I really do believe in that. And as I said earlier, I worked at a, a, at a at NRG, this market research group that, that coordinates those screenings, and uh, I worked at those before I'd made my first film. So I saw the process, and I saw the dangers of the process and also the benefits. Um, for comedies in particular, I think there's enormous benefit because making a self-indulgent comedy is pretty awkward. And if, if, if I throw, for instance, I throw a joke up on screen in front of 600 people and no one laughs, I'm a, I like that joke a little less. It's, it's that strange, uncomfortable silence. You know, in, in a drama, I think, can be really valuable. Um, and in a very uh, self-indulgent work of art that I'd try to create, it, it, w- it would be something that I would aspire to. And as you hear people like Martin Scorsese, when he sees people walking out of a test screening of Goodfellas, he applauds that. I think that's of great benefit to the perception of the movie and also to the, um, the diverse reaction that a movie can generate, and that's really strong. Um, with a comedy, particularly a movie like Pineapple Express, um, that was following in the in uh, in line with uh, you know not not a franchise but a, a series of very successful comedic films that Judd was a producer of, it was important to make a movie that, for me personally, worked to my sense of humor, but also could translate to uh, a massive audience worldwide. So, being able to fine tune and test uh, jokes and things that we thought were funny, uh, the strange. Uh, story about that movie is the movie got longer and the movie got weirder because we tested a very safe version of it that I was, I was very reluctant because it was my first test screening process and we tested something that I felt very confident in but also very comfortable with and people responded so well right out of the gate that we said well why don't we try that one thing that we thought would be too weird or too messed up for uh, a mainstream audience and then they go there for it and say a foot explosion exa- like that wasn't in the first that w- like the violence was very restrained our first Take. And then people would cheer and scream, and the vulgarity it was enhanced, and the absurdity was enhanced, and things that weren't jokes started getting great laughs. And I was finally <laughs> just thrilled that my sense of humor was finally something that I felt like, you know, 600 people, strangers in Burbank were understanding. And so it was a very, it was a moment of great confidence for me to be able to take that professional leap and outside of making obscure independent art films. Uh, you know, Pineapple was a great learning experience and learning curve for me. It was, it was strange that the midnight that it opened, it opened at midnight on a Tuesday, and in those midnight screenings it made more money than the first four films I'd made combined <laughs> at, at midnight. And, and that was simultaneously exciting and also totally depressing. Um, but I think when you have something that's, that is commercially driven um, that you can embrace, then, as we've learned on this new project I'm working on, we're trying to maximize our opportunity of of having that successful film behind us and make the movie of our dreams. So we're really cashing in on making the weirdest, strangest, craziest comedy that we can right now because I believe that's what audiences are going to want because it's new and it's different and it feels fresh rather than derivative. So your latest project is this film that is called Your Highness, um, which is a... um, uh, stars Danny McBride and, and was written, I think, by Danny McBride and Ben Best. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Um, and it's uh, a crazy, uh, it, it's a sort of like, it's a comedy set in the world of like a, like the 80s film version of Conan the Barbarian or like Krull or something exactly. like well, that. I mean, uh, those are wonderful, exciting references to hear other people say because <laughs> those, are, those are reference points that we had throughout the movie. And it is, it's, a, it's an adventure fantasy um, medieval-esque comedy. Um, and it's not a spoof or a satire. It's not the Holy Grail. It's it's a movie that we really put, you know, we we 
put our butts on the line and tried to make an adventure movie love story quest film that actually would just you know make you roll with laughter while watching it. And it's tremendously vulgar and tremendously violent. And I, I'm going to interrupt you. I find it difficult to imagine, and I'm sure that this was something that you, you conversed about with various film executives uh, who have the kind that write $100 million checks. Um, <laughs> I find it difficult to imagine a comedy set in the world of Krull or, you know, the Masters of the Universe live action film or whatever that is not a parody of those genres. Well, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, it's hard to explain. But you see a movie like, when I watch a film like uh, Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, like, you know that in the, in, the, in the filmmaker's mind there's a sense of comedy, but there's such a great admiration and appreciation that in, when I'm watching those movies, uh, it feels like a, a, a true, authentic, beloved recreation of those movies made by someone that truly cares about those movies not someone that's just mocking those movies it's i think we're beyond as as comedic audiences right now we're at least in a in a in a world where i don't think i don't think even even the the brilliant movies like airplane and top secret and naked gun series like those were favorite formidable movies of my childhood i don't think those play right now so i think playing the tongue very tightly in the cheek and very subtle sense of irony that's, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to be drawing from things that are somewhat goofy or campy, and, you, you know, you want people to truly laugh at something. But if you're not laughing at that, you're just recreating it in a way that just feels genuine and, and uh, it, it comes from a place of sincerity, then to me, you know, and everybody will laugh at different things or not laugh at all, and, you know, I you know, could burn in hell for having made this film at some point. Um, but I, I do feel like it's something that, this is what St. Peter is interested in, by the way. <laughs> exactly. But, it, it, you know, it's a, it was a, it's a ton of fun to make uh, this type of material. And when given the, the support that we've had from Universal Pictures, it's, you know, for one reason or another, look to us to say, you know, here's the keys to the Porsche. You know, just make us look good. <laughs> um, and we've, I think what we've, what we've done is really try to learn from and embrace the test screening on it, you know, the, the test screenings we've done and see what people are going for and, and where it might be a little too much because this, this film really rides that line and we want to push it. Um, but I think we want to make the kind of movie that you know, people are going to line up and talk about and, and see over and over and tell their friends about it. Can you, can you give me an example of something in the movie that, uh, where you're pushing your luck? Oh, man, it's just too many great reveals that I, I would, I'd, I'd, rather, <laughs> I'd rather not announce them until people kind of the, the, watch the film and it unfolds. But the, like Dragon Privates or anything? It, it gets pretty – gets, that's not far off. <laughs> <laughs> Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Are you or is your business interested in reaching The Sound of Young America's awesome audience? Via podcast, radio, and the World Wide Web, The Sound of Young America can connect you with the only people that matter, the awesome ones. Underwriting on The Sound of Young America reaches tens of thousands of clued-in listeners, and it supports the show, too. If you're interested in underwriting on The Sound of Young America, contact us directly at underwriting at MaximumFun.org. That's underwriting at MaximumFun.org. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This show was recorded at the South by Southwest International Film Festival, where filmmaker David Gordon Green gave a talk about filmmakers working in television. He's directed a number of episodes of the HBO comedy series Eastbound and Down. In the show, Danny McBride plays a broke, washed-up former Major League pitcher named Kenny Powers, who's taken a job as a substitute PE teacher. 
Here he is during his first day back in his hometown. I'm Kenny Powers. I'll be your new PE teacher until Coach Booth's back is fixed. Yeah, I'm famous, Lottie Dob. Now, at this time, I'd like to field any questions anybody has. This is the time to do it. You, big kid. Do we have to run the mile? I'm talking about me. I want these are questions about me personally as a superstar. You know, you got this moment in time here with an American icon. You're going to waste it asking a question about the fucking mile. Next question. Is it true you were in jail? Nah, babe, rehab. Did you hurt yourself? <laughs> nah, I didn't hurt myself. Because Coach Booth said after his back surgery, he has to go to rehab. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hurt myself. I hurt my nose. All right, got time for one more. Tim and kid. My dad said you ruined baseball. You know what? I can already tell that I don't like you. And I'm probably not going to like you, no matter how many pull-ups or push-ups you do. Or anybody wants to pick on anybody in class, aim for him, because I ain't watching. Um, you were originally scheduled to be here at South by Southwest to um, talk with a few of the other folks behind uh, Eastbound and Down, um, which is an HBO series that stars Danny McBride. Um, uh, which ran, what, maybe 18 months ago now, the first season, and um, uh, the second season is just starting production now. Um, It's a story about uh, Danny McBride as this uh, washed-up baseball pitcher, a sort of like, if people are out there who are baseball fans, maybe like a sort of Rod Beck-like figure, um, a sort of fat, arrogant, formerly dominating pitcher who... Uh, ends up back in his hometown. And, and at the end of the first season, um, uh, Danny McBride's character was headed out of town. Um, and you were just telling me that your colleagues had to, um, had to skip South by Southwest because they were headed to Puerto Rico to work on the show. And I'm guessing you're not setting the rural American scenes uh, you're not shooting the rural American scenes in Puerto Rico. <laughs> so it sounds like you've actually, you've actually followed through on this promise to, to take him out into a whole new world. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really fun series to work on. And, and I like, like, you know, it's a, again, it's like seemingly like all of my work, it kind of divides audiences and love and hate and all those things. Um, but for me, it's exciting. I'm not a writer on the show and, and it was created by Jody Hill and Danny McBride and Ben Best, and so I'm I'm an appreciative audience member that is fortunate enough to get his hands dirty and direct a few episodes of the show. So, as they come to me and we brainstorm ideas, and then they step away to to execute, it's just super exciting for me to be involved in those evolutions of characters and just have the insight to where their brains work because they're they're brilliant buddies of mine. That it's just when they create a character and I'm attracted to that character, I just can't wait to see where he's going to go. Uh, I just read the first episode of the new season the other day, and I was like literally pumping my fists as I was reading it in the air. So excited that they're bold enough and insane enough to write things that are actually makeable, uh, and and strangely, audiences seem to be tuning into. It was a it's a it was a fascinating thing to watch that program as it aired on HBO last year. Um, as the first episode, people were kind of shocked and appalled and, and many offended by it. And then <laughs> the people that really stuck with it and watched it as a complete season really saw the dr- dramatic notes of the character and, saw the, and, and strand, found a character that was at first unlikable and found him strangely endearing and somewhat sympathetic. And watching a character that is a train wreck that you know is just consistently making horrible decisions and he's making the wrong choices um, but, but hoping for the best for him, and then to see where he's going to go this season is just is so strange and exciting, and I think will be 
baffling in the, in the best possible way. It's so different um, from most, especially comic television, at least here in the United States, in that you can actually, you, it's very difficult to represent an arc, as we see, say, on the American version of The Office, over the course of 22 half hours, um, which is a, you know, a typical American television comedy season of a show. Um, Eastbounded down the first season with what six or seven episodes. First season was six, and this next one's eight. So that's um, that's an amount of time. While it's a lot more than a movie, it's still something where you can really represent an arc that has a beginning and an end. How, how do you, as somebody who's directing only, you know, the second, fifth, and sixth hours or whatever it is, um, make sure that you're hitting the right notes tonally in this really tonally complicated piece and also, you know, matching the beginning and ending of your sections of that arc to the person going before and after you. Well, in our case, it's easy. I think in a lot of, a lot of um, television work, there's director for hire jobs where someone comes in and, and, and does, their, does their episode then leaves. And that would be really difficult to really know the nuances of that character and what you're, what you're coming away from or what you're building to. Um, the wonderful thing about a, um, a network like HBO is just to really be able to to flesh out a character and not fall into the formulas of, of 30 minute television or hour long television, but be able to really look at it in a broad, like in a seasonal arc rather than a, in a in a in a one episode kind of time frame. And uh, with something like uh, Eastbound, it's it's in a multi seasonal arc. Like we have where we want season one, two, three, et cetera, to go, and I'm a part of what is essentially a band making the show, um, a band of probably ma- the majority of the people that work on the show are guys that I've been working with for 15 years since film school. So it's, it's, it's exciting to be at a, at a phase professionally where you're working with your best friends and you're creating things together with that trust and encouragement and in, in almost that audacity of, like, I dare you to go there. I dare you to film this. And so there's a really healthy sense of competitiveness within it as well. And then... We're also, um, you know, the, the, the show is executive produced by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell and guys that are, like, get to step in and, you know, do a solo with our band. And it's, and it's kind of a fun way to use their experience and their sense of humor to, like, add a little fresh twist to what we do because inevitably they're going to work a little differently. But so to answer your question, the, the, this, this particular series is so specifically discussed and understood by all the parties that we all, we all know what makes Kenny Powers tick. And so anywhere someone might go is just an exciting curveball for the next guy to step in line and try to try to match that. Um, you're here in Austin at South by Southwest. We're here in Austin at South by Southwest. And most of the folks that we're talking to, most of the filmmakers especially that we're talking to are here because they've got a movie premiering. Um, uh, you know, they're, or maybe they're here to see bands, but mostly because they've got a movie premiering. You don't have a movie showing here at South by Southwest. Um, why is it so important for you to come here and do this? Well, I'm a firm believer of the theory that whatever I project, I have to fill back up. So if I make a film, I have to, I have to bring stories. Not, I, don't, I can't just uh, regurgitate or I can't just give stories. I have to fill up the machine. And a lot of that comes from travel. I do a lot of traveling, and a lot of it comes from watching movies, and a lot of it comes from just new experiences because I feel like it's so easy within this industry to have one project lead to the next project leads to the next project that, you know, where I once considered myself a writer of insight or romance or, or the understanding of human nature, all of a sudden I'm dealing with studio executives and, you know, and, and, 
people of extraordinary wealth and success on a day-to-day basis trying to get my projects going, and inevitably that's who I'm kind of encountering on, on those, those wheels of life, that if I don't, if I don't have some sort of a grounding in, in all aspects and elements of life, then I'm, then I'm missing out on things that are going to refuel that fire. I think one of the strange things about directors that kind of become celebrities in their own right is that the, a lot of those guys that are, are brilliant writers, I don't, I don't understand where they can pull from anymore because they walk into a strange coffee shop or a, or a greasy spoon diner or a bar somewhere and immediately an icon has just walked into the room. And I don't, myself trying to kind of keep a discreet profile with outside of the uh, movie business, um, it's important that I can still be a sponge and I can still disappear and, and then reappear. And here at South by Southwest, it's just a great opportunity for me to watch films that a lot of friends of mine that have made. There's a guy that graduated from our college a few years behind me, made this film, Cold Weather, that we saw the other day. And James Franco has a documentary on Saturday Night Live that was playing last night. And the Duplass brothers, who are friends of mine, had a movie premiering. And, you know, so it's fun to go and encourage your collaborators and your friends and the people that have gone before you of their work that, they, that you admire and the people that are kind of that you've kind of helped uh, take a couple of steps into their own career. It's, it's just a really rewarding thing to, to be a part of those evolutions and see the various documentaries that you'll otherwise never get a chance to see, get exposure to that, and just be down to earth and go to a barbecue at night and sweat it up and drink a few beers in your buddy's backyard. David Gordon Green, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy sweating it up in your buddy's backyard schedule (laughs) to be on the sound of young america it was great to have you here good talking to you david gordon green joined us from the south by southwest film festival his next film slated to be in theaters in a few months is your highness that's our time for another sound of young america program i have been your host jesse thorne america's radio sweetheart the show produced by speaking into microphones Our shows in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest were directed and produced by Nick White in Chicago. Our intern is Julia Smith. Our videographer, Benjamin Harrison, shot videos of all of our programs recorded at South by Southwest. You can find them on our website at MaximumFun.org. Our special thanks to the Mansion at Judges Hill in Austin, Texas, for providing us with space to record our shows and videos. You can find them online at mansionatjudgeshill.com. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America. The Sound of Young America's trip to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was supported by Phillips Cinema, celebrating short film online at facebook.com slash Philips Cinema.